0: Hi, this is Alan Shartak. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Joseph Thierry. Dr. Thierry is an osteopathic physician and specialist in the practice of osteopathic manipulation. He graduated from the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine in 1997 and completed his residency training at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. Dr. Thierry has been in private practice for more than 16 years and is part owner of the Stone Ridge Healing Arts Center in Stone Ridge, New York. He's a clinical instructor, lecturer, and is the author of the upcoming book titled End Everyday Pain for 50-Plus, a a 10-Minute-A-Day Program of Stretching, Strengthening, and Movement to Break the Grip of Pain. We'll talk to Dr. Joseph Thierry about all of that and more. But first, welcome, Dr. Thierry. Well, thank you very much, Alan. I'm excited to be here. So I guess the first question is,
1: what's the difference between being an MD and a DO? That's an excellent question and one that I grapple with and one that patients of mine particularly tell me. You know, I refer you to friends all the time, but I still don't know how to explain what you do. So it's not an easy thing to explain, and also because it's changed a lot over the years. But what I'd like to do maybe is talk a little bit bit about the origin, and then we'll talk about what's going on now. Sure. So the origin is the late 1800s, and Dr. Andrew Taylor Still is a frontier physician, and he... Is in the medical profession, which at the time is really a disorganized group of people. There wasn't a lot of formal training at the time, and yeah, you know the expression, the cure is often worse than the disease. Mm-hmm. Well, this was kind of common back in that time, where bloodletting was still a popular thing to do. A lot you know, of good people got killed that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Similarly, the calomel was a was a substance that was given mm-hmm. very frequently, and calomel has a mercury compound oh, and is quite poisonous. So, you know, physicians felt that disease at the time was really the sum total of your symptoms. And so, if you had a fever, were writhing in pain, were vomiting, then they wanted to address those symptoms. And in a way, after they took out a couple of quarts of blood from you or gave you a toxic substance, it appeared that you were doing better. Uh, your fever typically went down. You know, when you lose a couple pints of blood, your temperature typically goes down. And you might then be kind of peacefully lying in bed. So. In a sense, they felt like they were treating the underlying disease, but in in fact, they were probably killing people. And Dr. Still, therefore, in that environment, really wanted to seek an alternative, combined with the fact that Dr. Still himself lost three of his children to spinal meningitis, and he tried traditional medical routes with his children to no avail. So this was kind of the environment that he was a professional in. And also, Dr. Still was a keen observer of nature, and he was a uh, a ardent anatomist. In fact, um, Dr. Still was a physician on a uh, Shawnee Indian reservation in uh, Kansas. And one of the things he liked to do was dig up Indians who were typically buried very shallowly and dissect them. So he learned a lot about anatomy. And basically, Dr. Still felt that the role of the osteopath was to allow nature to heal, that he he thoroughly believed that Uh, Nature is the real healer, and the role of the physician was to remove any obstacles to healing, and then nature would take over.
0: But you have introduced the word osteopath. I don't want to let you go on until you tell us. At what point did we start
1: hearing about osteopaths? Uh, Well, Dr. Still launched the concept in 1874. But the first school of osteopathic medicine was actually 1892.
0: So right now, uh, I know a lot of DOs. Basically, they got a DO degree, but they practice conventional medicine as opposed to a different kind of medicine. Is that common, or is there a separate branch of being a DO which does lend itself to manipulation and to other things?
1: Yeah, there's a separate branch, and what it really is is it's an oral tradition. And it's it's a small group of osteopaths who really cling to the original philosophy and practice. I would say out of close to 90,000 DOs today, a couple of hundred do what I do. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Medicine really changed a lot in the 1900s. A lot of those kind of deadly techniques and approaches are gone, fortunately. Also, there was something called the Flexner Report in 1912, and it was the powerful medical association's attempt to get rid of osteopaths, you know, kind of get rid of your competition, if you will. So they got Congress to pass laws that said, if you're going to call yourself a physician in this country, you need a certain set of standards, among which would be more surgery, more pharmacology. and So starting in the early 1900s, actually, right before, a few years before Dr. Still actually died, osteopaths started to become more like traditional physicians. And that happened on a statewide basis, too. If you're an obstetrician and you're a DO and you're practicing in a state, well, they want you to have a certain set of standards as well. So really, it was kind of a beginning of a political movement, but over time, the two professions have really merged and have become very similar.
0: So was it unintended consequences? The Pauls, the political people, pass a bill to sort of get rid of the osteopaths, but instead, they ensure that the osteopaths, the DOs, become
1: conventional doctors also. Exactly. And and one of the reasons they had a hard time getting rid of us at all was because Dr. Still was very popular. He was treating a lot of statesmen. They actually put in a train from Washington, D.C. to Kirksville, Missouri, where he had his hospital. And he had some popular fans like Mark Twain, some other noted personalities who talked about the benefits of osteopathy. So we became entrenched, and Dr. Still was doing very good work, and so uh, much as they tried, they couldn't get rid of us, and instead we have become very similar.
0: Okay. So now, doctor, it hurts, my hip hurts, my back hurts, my leg hurts, my foot hurts, yeah. um, and, um, and you go to most EOs, they'll tell you what everybody else says, well, let's <laughs> take a picture, let's do this, let's do that, yeah. whereas you have a different approach.
1: Yes. For one thing, in 16 years of practice, I think I've ordered one or two films. Really? Yeah. Now, of course, a lot of my patients do come equipped already, but to me... X-rays and MRIs have probably done more disservice to the musculoskeletal system than anything else we do. How so? For several reasons. First off, studies have shown, and in the book I will have coming out soon, I, I actually include a lot of studies, and I didn't originally think I would do that. I wrote the book for the layperson and had no real intention of including footnotes and scientific studies. But the more I dove into it, the more I realized how many studies there were that prove that a lot of these findings are red herrings, or I, I call them scapegoats. Like what findings? Arthritis, meniscal tears, herniated discs. And the reason I say that is because there have been many studies that show that people with no pain at all walk around with these findings all the time. I think it all began with a landmark study in the early 90s as published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where... You know, there were a lot of back surgeries for herniated discs, and people discovered there was a high rate of failed back surgeries. So people were just not doing well after these surgeries, and it didn't make sense. If you have a herniated disc, we remove it, why aren't you well? So somebody finally thought about the idea of, why don't we look at people with no history of back pain, no current or past history of back pain, throw them under an MRI and see what it shows. And sure enough, they found that upwards of half of those people with no previous history of back pain had herniated discs. And the same kinds of findings are true with rotator cuff tears, meniscal tears, and things like that, where people with no history of shoulder pain, knee pain, or whatnot walk around with these kinds of findings.
0: Uh, We're talking to Dr. Joseph Thierry. Doctor, I guess I gotta say, in the interest of full disclosure, I went to everybody for my back. I mean everybody, Mm -hmm. including DOs, Mm -hmm. who were on your side of the DO fence. Um, and And it didn't help. I got an operation with a wonderful uh, physician, and from the day after, no
1: pain. Mm-hmm. So it isn't as if back surgery never works. That's true. And it's true with joint replacements, too, which is another very common surgery nowadays. I have many patients who, who well, not many, but several that did well after knee or hip replacements. But still, studies show that upwards of 30% p- of people aren't satisfied with is those it, kinds of procedures. Is it getting better? I think it is getting a little bit better, and, and that's true of all techniques. The more you know, time passes, the better the, the approaches come and the techniques themselves. But let me tell you this. I talk about the care of the musculoskeletal system like the care of the mouth. I use that analogy all the time. And that is, you know, there was a time in the 1800s where it was very common for people to lose a tooth in the middle of a meal. And I mean people in their 20s and 30s, gums would bleed, you know, all kinds of problems because we didn't understand the care of the mouth. Cut to now and we realize that several things need to be done. You need to do some daily work, some brushing and flossing to maintain your health. Indeed. Uh, We need to see our dental hygienist because as much as we do, we still need an expert to get in there and do deep cleanings and really, you know, do the work we can't do. And lastly, there's certain things we probably shouldn't do. Some habits that we probably shouldn't engage in. Chewing tobacco, sucking on rock candy, you know, whatever. Smoking. (laughs) Smoking, right. So I use the same analogy for the care of the body. And that is, first of all, we need to be doing things on a regular daily basis to maintain our body. A very common thing I hear in my office is people come in and they're in their 50s or 60s and they say, Doc, you know, six months ago I was in perfect health. And now it's like one thing after another. It was my knee, then it was my hip, now it's my neck. I'm living malady to malady. And I realized all along that this was coming because in my office I treat 15-year-olds and 25-year-olds and 30. And so I would see the transition as the body got tighter and more stiff, more molded, as I call it. And I knew that this was coming. And, again, so in order to stem that tide, we need to do some daily work just like the care of the mouth and for me that's a little bit of exercise a little bit of stretching a little bit of strengthening and targeted not just but not too much no not too much and also most people don't have the time to engage in half an hour or an hour of exercise so I was able to through my work on the body target it to the specific areas I found that people had problems with as they got older so there's these three approaches one is doing the daily work just like brushing and flossing for your mouth The other is also some habits, okay? Some people slouch, some people read in bed. (laughs) I'm gonna talk about slouching a little bit later too, Alan. There's a reason for it, but in any event, so there's some daily habits we need to look at too, just like, again, for the care of the mouth, and it might be reading in bed with the head propped up on pillows. I mean, that creates probably more neck pain than anything else I see. And then finally, is just like seeing the dental hygienist. I think everybody needs to see an expert for maintenance, and I don't care if it's a massage therapist, a chiropractor, a physical therapist, an osteopath. Well, we, but there are obviously differences between those professions, aren't there? There are, but there are also different bodies, and there are different problems with bodies. So some people respond well to one practitioner and not to another, and the expertise of the practitioner means a lot.
0: Okay, so so give me an idea. Give me a little list, if you will, doctor, about what I should be doing every day. And I just want to tell you a short story, although there will be people who think, oh, shut up. When I was a young college professor at Rutgers, I got called in by the dean, Dean Marjorie Foster. She wanted to meet me. I came in. I was wearing sunglasses, and she asked me to remove them. And she also told me to stop slouching, or you will pay for it later <laughs> in your later in your life. Uh-huh. And in fact, I did. I didn't like her that day. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, as I look back on that meeting, I have to give her a little credit.
1: Yeah, you don't hear that enough. You know, that's that's the amazing thing is you know. Because of the forgiving nature of youth, we just go through life and don't really do any maintenance. We don't care about our bodies, and rarely do people say don't slouch, although I, I hear that. It's probably becoming less and less common as time goes by, but uh, we rarely get any kind of direction or teaching about our bodies. Okay, so, so she was wise. Now, now I need you to sure. give us a, sort of a, a little trip Absolutely. Through, through what we should do every day. Okay, well, let's start with the upper body. Okay. okay? The biggest problems with the upper body are the shoulders round and the head comes forward. I never understood what they meant by round. Well, it basically means that they move forward. Okay? The shoulder shoulder should be back, you know, and then it slowly rounds forward. And in the back, you notice it because the shoulder blades move away from your spine. And actually, they come a little bit off the back. In a young child, they have a fairly flat upper back. As we get older, we tend to really see the shoulder blades sticking out. And this is the process that happens. They actually just literally round forward. What rounds forward your shoulders? the shoulder girdle is basically the shoulder blade the capsule of the joint and the arm itself the humerus that sticks into that joint that whole complex rounds and the reason is because you know there are a lot of benefits to walking upright i have to admit but one of the downsides is unlike with four-legged animals we have nothing to push our shoulders back like the earth does for the four-legged animals instead i say it like we live in an imaginary box in front of our chest with our arms we're reading writing typing driving we're always in front with our arms. We rarely are putting our arms overhead, certainly not behind us, like we did when we climbed trees or the jungle gym as kids. So this process causes the rounding. And, and it's most notable when somebody in their 60s, 70s tells me, oh, you know, I went to reach for something on a shelf or behind me. And, you know, I, I didn't realize. I-, I had that. I got to go physical therapy for months, <laughs> but they got me back on the road again. Yeah. And there are ways to address it but so this is the process so number one for me as far as your daily activity to prevent this is you have to get and I'm actually developing one of these that I think will be perfect but some sort of roll or bolster okay like a half round bolster you see them in massage therapy offices or whatnot and you sit on the floor and you pull it up to the small of your back and you have it running straight up so that when you lie down on it it's running up your spine okay okay that pushes your trunk forward up off the floor. And then all you do is you put your arms straight out to the sides and you rest them or relax them. And the weight of your arm will actually start to pull your shoulders back. And it's the pectoral muscles that actually get tight as the shoulder rounds. So you're stretching your pec muscles, allowing the shoulder to go back. And that's a great postural thing to do for the How shoulders. long do you hold it? You know, this is the thing about stretching. A lot of people say to me, you know, I stretch, but I really didn't get results. Or, you know, I've found in all my years... I could probably say there's maybe a dozen people that do the right stretches or do them correctly, and that's why people don't have a lot of success with stretching. Studies have shown that you need to hold a stretch a minimum of 30 seconds when you're younger, and probably when you're 60 and older, you need to hold them for a full minute. Mm. And these these have been done in studies where they did different rates of times and whatnot, and they looked at people over the course of six months. Mm. And the good news, even though the bad news is most people have to hold a stretch longer than they're used to, the good news is that... One and done. They've shown that that first stretch probably gets you 95% of your stretching. So don't bother repeating the whole cycle. One time a day, hold it for 60 seconds. I'm probably
0: premature, Dr. Thierry, about asking this question, but everybody I talk to, and I have a program, Medical Monday, a lot of people call in, and they announce that they have scoliosis, Uh which is a curvature of the spine, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, of course, something that they're convinced of is the cause of all of their problems. Is it? Or is it a result? This is
1: rare. Uh Uh-huh. But it's used a lot by people. Just like arthritis or I have sciatica. Well, what is your sciatica? Oh, I have pain in my butt or my back. That's not sciatica. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of misinformation in the medical community. And basically because most medical physicians are not trained well in the musculoskeletal system. So they kind of probably propagate a lot of these myths and misnomers. But... Scoliosis is a condition where you have the spine, at least three segments of the vertebra are curved in the same direction. There's a lot of maybe mild scoliosis. I feel spines all the time. I don't feel a lot of major scoliosis and, and I've had a couple severe cases, but it's pretty rare. Sometimes kids have it because they have a heavy backpack on one side or they sit on the couch in a slumped position or they look awkwardly at their, you know, electronic device. And over time, especially in a young child, that can start to create imbalance in the muscles running up the spine and that can turn the spine a little bit and cause scoliosis is it correctable oh very much so yeah i treat it anybody who treats the spine treats it and then what i like to do is refer people to pilates or some area where they're going to really address the muscle imbalance and the core strength and things like that what but is it's very pilates? Treatable. Well, I'm not the expert, but Pilates is was uh, something developed by a man named Joseph Pilates who uh, worked a lot with dancers and just noticed a lot of kind of asymmetry and weakness in the body that developed over time and, and came up with a method to correct it. There's floor mat work. There's machines that they uh, work with, but my experience is it's a good way of dealing with imbalance and weakness in the body
0: you were starting and I unfortunately interrupted you
1: to give us some of the basic stretches yes I've learned one already let's have some more yeah and before I do that let me just tell you a little bit more about the shoulder because this is a really important point I think what studies have also shown is that when the shoulder rounds a little space there's a little knob on your shoulder we call it the acromion that little bump that everybody has the space under there is called the subacromial space in that space lies a very important rotator cuff tendon called the supraspinitis tendon and it is the one that's 95 percent of the time is torn in people that have rotator cuff tears or inflamed if you have tendonitis the reason is studies have shown is as those shoulders round that subacromial space narrows and it creates a pinch or what we call impingement syndrome okay so the vast majority of people that have rotator cuff tears or tendonitis or just any kind of shoulder problem got there because the shoulder rounded and that space was narrowed. Now, they may say, yeah, but I was out weeding for an hour and that's what started it. Yeah, that that was the insult that finally gave you the problem, but the problem was there because of a slow change in posture. And this is why I don't order a film for one reason. If you come into my office and you tell me you have shoulder problems, I don't care if you have a tear. You're not going to have surgery unless, you know, you're a baseball pitcher. It doesn't matter to me what the actual diagnosis is from an MRI's point of view. I know what the problem is from a musculoskeletal point of view, the tension, the posture, the asymmetry. And I'm going to treat that with my hands, and then I'm going to give you that postural stretch. You're going to get your shoulders back. You're going to open that space. And that's what we call treating the problem not the effects of the problem or the symptoms of the problem your shoulder pain is a symptom of a bigger problem it's not the problem itself well
0: now there's somebody sitting out there who's saying come on doctor how do you no. know said, uh,
1: films don't know I know how do we know that you know well again studies have backed me up there are plenty of studies that show that painless people walk around with supraspinitis tears and rotator cuff tears all the time so sure. number one we know they're not the whole story number two People who do hands-on work, whether it's myself or other practitioners, know because we treat shoulders successfully all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after treating you for a couple months, giving you some exercises, you're better. Now, if I did an MRI, would that tear still be there? Probably. But you don't care anymore. I don't care. So practitioners like myself know it because we get the results in our offices. And as I said, I kind of was writing a book basically just about those kinds of facts, and I was a little surprised the more I dug in that science backs it up. So, let me just go back to this technique a little bit. So, you're going to spend a minute, you know, stretching your shoulders back. With a buffer behind you. Yeah, some sort of bolster because actually not everybody needs the bolster. If your shoulders are severely rounded and you just lie flat on the floor with your arms out, you'll probably feel some pulling, some stretching happening already. But for the average person, you need to elevate that trunk a little bit to get enough backward bend of the arm to get a proper stretch. If you do that once a day for a couple of weeks, not only are you going to start to feel when you're more rounded and feel better, but it really is a good postural cue, too, because you'll notice more when, when you're actually slumping, as it were. Second thing I do for the upper body, and the second most common problem, is that the head starts to come forward, and if you look at a lot of elderly people from the side, you see their head is in front of their trunk. If it, Proper alignment would have my ear lined up over my shoulder or whatever, but it starts to move forward as, as time goes by. And okay stop yeah I'm 75 years old do you see me looking at me do you see my head going forward yes although I have to say you're better than average okay one of the ways I know this problem is not just visually but when I lie my patients down my elderly patients on the table if I only have the one thin pillow on the table that I use for my 15 and 25 years old their heads are pointing more back toward my wall their chins are up in the air and they don't feel comfortable they feel like they're falling backward and they ask me for another pillow And I prop their head up and they feel better. So that's another indication I have that their head has moved forward. And I have a test in my book where I say, you know, lie flat and put your, you know, lie flat on the floor and see what position your head's in. If you feel like your chin is up in the air and you're looking more back than up, you know your head has moved forward. This is a major problem because the average head weighs about 14 pounds. And studies have shown that when your head moves one inch forward on your trunk, you double the weight of your head as far as your neck is concerned. So now mm-hmm. your neck has to support 28 pounds of pressure instead of 14. Wow. Big problem for herniated discs, degenerative changes in the spine, probably those arthritic changes. Um, so, again, even when we're talking about these findings like disc problems, arthritis, whatnot, they, again, are results of a problem. They're not the problem themselves. But, it, you know, and I'm a physician, I know you know, and I respect physicians, but in medicine we tend to focus too much on the symptoms we need to look at what causes those problems. So herniated discs are caused from too much pressure down the spine. Well, how do we release that pressure, not how do we remove the disc? That's, that's my approach. And th- not all this stuff is, you know, new or groundbreaking. It's been around. But there's a very common thing for the head, and that is really, again, to lie flat on your back, on the floor. As your head is kind of going to be a little tilted up, you just take your hands behind your neck, and you just stretch the back of your neck. You elongate your head. Ooh you could even do it seated it's called the chin tuck you know you you sit here forward and we kind of get this concept of just tucking your chin sometimes when i demonstrate it some people are so far forward that what i do to demonstrate it for them is i take a tennis ball and i just tuck it under their chin and i have them hold that for a minute because if your head is out here forward jutting forward you are not going to be able to hold a tennis ball under your chin it's going to drop right down so they're little cues and little, again, stretches that I recommend for these posture problems. And those are just the two I do for the upper body. I have some for the back and I have some for well, the Well, no, no,
0: don't stop there. We've got time.
1: Okay. Give us some more um for the low back the biggest problem is people round we sit too much we slouch too much our low back rounds and it becomes weak and i have a whole another little thing i talk now you keep using this word rounds help us Mm -hmm. understand what that means so the normal curvature of the lumbar spine is what we call a lordosis It, it actually has a little curve where if you were to put your hand in the small of your back it would go in a little bit there'd be a little curve When we round, it's like that low back is now pushing my hand away. It's actually curving the opposite direction, Mm. okay? So, you know, you can imagine a real slumped over person bending at the waist, their low back is gonna be rounded, whereas if I'm sitting nice and upright on my haunches, as we say, I'm maintaining the normal curve. So the biggest problem with the lumbar spine are two things. One, the muscles, we call them the hip flexors. They're our most powerful muscles in our body. They're named the psoas muscles. They're what bend you forward. Are you a meat eater, Alan? I do occasionally. I
0: eat almost no red meat anymore. Okay. But I do eat some chicken and some Mm -hmm. protein. You're familiar with the filet mignon or the tenderloin? We had one just the other day, (laughs) filet mignon,
1: and we had to go get a second mortgage to eat (laughs) it. Well, you get what you pay for. Well, the psoas muscles I was just talking about, and again, by hip flexors, what I mean is every time you lift your leg up toward your trunk, you're using your psoas muscles, or any time you bend your trunk forward on your legs. You're using these big hip flexors, the psoas muscles. The psoas muscles are the tenderloin of the cow or the pig. And the reason they're so coveted and expensive is because they're the tenderest cut of meat in a four-legged animal. Reason being, a four-legged animal, their trunk is always at a 90-degree angle to their hind legs, Mm -hmm, okay? mm -hmm. And that psoas muscle because it connects the two and would normally do a lot of flexing. It really does no work, so Mm. it's tender. Because we sit so much, we're in this kind of four-legged position between our trunk and our thighs. Our psoas muscle starts to get weak as well, where it should be out there kicking soccer balls and doing karate and jumping. and you know, Most people, a combination of inactivity and too much sitting, those big flexors get weak and tight. And that's one of the major problems of low back pain. So what people need to do, number one, is stretch those flexors. And the way you do it, you know... I give a lot of credit to yoga. Uh, there are some postures in yoga. There's one called the sun salutation that stretches that muscle probably six different ways in a 12 mm, you know, routine. I've done it. <laughs> yeah. And they knew way back when how important these muscles were. And yet most patients I talk to, they never do this kind of stretch. Basically, you're lying on your belly face down and you come up on the palms of your hand. You can just stop on your elbows. We call it like sphinx, you know, the sphinx in Egypt, that position. Or TV watching where you kind of rest your chin on your hands like kids would lie on the living room floor and watch the TV in front of them. Mm. So that backward bend is extremely important for the health of low back and to stretch those psoas muscles. And what exactly does it do? It takes the point of origin and insertion, the two ends that the psoas muscle attaches to, and it makes them farther apart and stretches the muscle. So it's a literally a psoas muscle stretch.
0: And if the muscle is stressed, mm-hmm. stretch. Stretched, I'm yeah. sorry, that
1: provides relief to... Tight muscles are muscles that are ripe for spasm and chronic pain, either yeah. acute or chronic. Tight muscles, there's, there's two, just off the top of my head, two major problems with tight muscles. Number one, again, they're more ripe to go into spasm and cause people pain. Uh, the other problem is the function of muscle is to move the body. All muscles span joints. That's the reason we have muscles is so you can move your joints. The psoas is what one of the two major hip stabilizer muscles. So you've got two muscles that wind up at your hip joint. The psoas connects from your lumbar spine down to your hip joint or your femur and basically has a lot of function for your hip joint. So the psoas being one of the major stabilizers of the hip joint, what that means is when it's tight, you're going to have hip joint problems. So tight muscle creates problems for joints because that's their role is to move joints. Take a tight muscle and you're going to compact that joint now. So I think a lot of hip problems result from tight psoas muscles. So again, the goal here is to get that psoas muscle stretched back where it should be. And if we were farmers and you know, hunters and gatherers, you know, we probably would have fine psoas muscles. But life in the modern world... Sets its sights on certain problems of the body, and the low back is definitely one of the main targets. Well, I like that. So now we've learned another one, basically. Mm -hmm. What do you call that in uh, yoga, the the sun? They call it the cobra if you come all the way up on your palms. Now, most Mm -hmm. of my elderly patients aren't going to make it that far, but they don't have to. That muscle is so tight that for my average patient, say, 60 and older, although I do have some very fit patients, I have to admit, but for the average person, 60-plus, I just tell them, lie face down on, you know, just rest your forehead on the backs of your hands, just completely down, flat on the ground. And for a lot of people, that position alone gives them a backache because they're just not used to even lengthening Mm. your body. You know, problem or one of the things people do that I don't agree with is they, if they're back sleepers, they put a pillow under their knees. I was just, by the way, going to ask you about the difference between a tummy sleeper, I am, and a back sleeper, my wife is. Well, a tummy sleeper is going to have a little bit better psoas, I'll tell you that, because you're already lengthening your body a little bit, which is great. And that alone will probably give you a, a better uh, you know, starting point with your psoas. But I have nothing against stomach sleepers. I used to be. <laughs> yeah. I used, and lo- you'll hear a lot of bad press about stomach sleeping. I really don't understand. In- well, the babies, they always worry that they had well, sids the and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a different case. But for the adults, the only problem I personally had with it, and I think people do sometimes get into, is with the neck. Because you're going to have your head torqued so far to the side on your belly that a lot of people start to get neck pain, and I I was one of those people,
0: oh, so I had to stop doing that. So you changed. I, yeah. I always thought it was impossible to change if you
1: were born a dummy sleeper. If your I parents have, put you on your it, it's very hard to change sleeping positions in general. You're right. People have a, a big challenge with it, but I have a fantastic method that still takes a little practice. But something I do I use. A body pillow, but I don't use like a full-length body pillow. It doesn't go down to my legs. It's just the the width of a normal pillow, but it's a very fat pillow. And what I do now is I put it under my chest, and I sleep face down on the pillow. So I'm kind of at a 45-degree angle.
0: But your head is drooping over the pillow? No, my
1: head is still on my normal pillow. But if you think about it, because my trunk is a little bit off the mattress now, my head is not torqued all the way to the side, right, right. so it relieved my neck probably. So you're sleeping with two pillows, one under I've, your chest yes. and one the regular pillow. Regular. And if you're a belly sleeper or a back sleeper, you want as thin a pillow as you can get away with. You don't want your head pushed up off the mattress because that would put you out of alignment. So make sure you've got a pancake pillow if you can do it. Well, what do you like? You like foam rubber? You like down? What do you like? You know, I always say it could be a rock as long as your head is aligned with your trunk. The main thing is alignment. Okay, I don't care what it's that. made of. Okay. Let's talk about alignment. What do you mean by that? Well, think about, let's start with the back. That's probably the easiest one to think about. If you're lying flat on your back, you're you're on a field, on a, on a lawn, you have no pillow, okay? And you're in perfect alignment. From the side, your head is sitting right on top of your trunk as it should be. That's That's the proper alignment. Now you start to put something under your head, you're going to be raising your head on your trunk. You're starting to force your head forward. That is not proper So why do we do that? Over time, as the head starts to come forward, you know, we probably shouldn't be teaching kids. Maybe that's part of the problem. But people get used to it. And then over time, again, because our head starts to come forward, we're not comfortable without a pillow anymore. So Mm -hmm. we need one. In fact, as I said, patients need two or three. And you don't want to force your head forward on your trunk. And as I mentioned earlier, the biggest problem with neck's typically that I see are people who read in bed or watch TV in bed flat lying flat but a couple pillows propped up under their head I mean you want neck pain that'll give it to you faster than anything Mm. so so on your back the proper position when your back of your head is in the same plane as the back of your body that is no pillow that's that's alignment anything you put under your head now you start to force the head forward so again thin is in when it comes to back sleeping similarly turn yourself over onto your belly You know, it's a little hard to explain, but your head is still kind of right over your trunk when you're lying flat, and the more you kind of stick a pillow under your head, the more you're going to be propping your head backward and creating asymmetry in the neck muscles, and over time, that creates a problem. So thin is in for the belly and the back, and then side sleepers need a little bit more because they have to make up the gap between the shoulder and the head. So if you have too thin, you're you're going to be kind of falling down to the mattress. If you've got too many pillows, you're pushing your head up too far. So if you draw a line straight down through your forehead, your nose, your mouth, you go right down the middle of your sternum, your trunk, you know, you want that alignment that way. Too small a pillow, you're angling down. Too thick a pillow, you're pushing your head up. So you need a little bit more on your side. And that gets a little bit problematic for people who switch. Some people start on their back. They wind up on their side. But, you know, you have to, sometimes I tell people, use a thin pillow on your stomach and when you go to your side, fold it over. Or some people have a well that maybe that works on their front or back and then when they roll to their side, they go to the higher point of the pillow. But, but uh, pillow height is extremely important in head position. And I had a patient who had chronic neck pain and no matter what we did, it just didn't seem to get better. And I finally figured out he had a camper up in uh, the Adirondacks and he was going up there almost every weekend and I asked him about his pillow and he told me "Yeah, he had a different one up there as he had at home and it was that constant change in height of his head that would give him this nagging neck pain and when we told when I told him to bring your pillow with you his neck pain went away so it's a major contributor Interesting. You do
0: manipulation, your DO, and we are talking, I should always remember to say, we're talking with Dr. Joseph Thierry, who is an osteopathic physician and a specialist in the practice of osteopathic manipulation, and has written a book titled, Everything Pain for 50 Plus, a -a 10-Minute-A-Day Program of Stretching, Strengthening, and Movement. Okay. So, doctor, do you do manipulation yourself? Do you touch the spine? Do you try to get things into
1: alignment? How do you do that? That's all I do, and, and uh, again, I'm one, one of the few osteopaths who still practice, uh, as we say, ten-finger DOs instead of three-finger. With like three-finger, it. you just write. You need to write the prescription, hold the pen. <laughs> Ten fingers is what you need to do. Manipulation. No more because now you have to put the prescription in. Via <laughs> that's true. The well, DNA. for me, it'd be two-finger because that's how I type. <laughs> <He> t- but... <laughs> but Yeah, that's all I do. I uh, spend—I used to spend more time. I had a 45-minute appointment, but I've been in practice a long time, and and a lot of this work is experience, and the more practice I do, the better I get. And so uh, now my follow-up is traditionally about a half hour, but I spend that time with my hands treating the patient. And while I take into consideration the patient's complaint, I definitely treat the whole body. And you'll hear that a lot, and it's true that everything is related. So if I have somebody with neck pain, you know, I got to treat that shoulder because as that shoulder rounds forward, it pulls that trapezius Mm -hmm. muscle, which gives neck pain. I have to treat the spine itself, and I do very gentle manipulation on the spine. Well, what do you do? What do you look for when you're doing that? I look for asymmetry. So this gets back a little bit to the problem again with MRIs and x-rays. You can't see misalignment and tension on an X-ray or an MRI, but that's the cause of most people's pain. Well, you can see misalignment, but you can't see tension. Obvious cases of uh, scoliosis can be noted on a film, but that's it. Um, And and a lot of this stuff is rather subtle. I mean, a spine may be actually pretty well aligned when I go to treat it, but when I go to just gently turn the vertebra, they just are stuck. They don't move, and they need to be. The the body relies on motion, so uh, you know that kind of thing they're not going to see on any film. But that's what I do. I treat the spine. Can you feel the tension? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, after 16 years, I've probably treated 20,000 spines in my day. And and what's it like? It hurts my fingers. I'll tell you, sometimes at the end of the day, my fingers are sore because I'm putting a little bit of force in. Some people's spines are so tight that uh, they really need a little bit of work. I've,
0: I've heard people say that the worst thing that ever happened is that when man came out of the slime, they got up on both legs as opposed to, you had mentioned this before, as opposed to, you know, what the other mammals and others have done. <laughs> For is, that, I,
1: is that true? I wouldn't go back, I'd tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think I'm pretty happy where I am. Um, but, you know, as I said before, certain certain problems <laughs> occur, but I blame them more on modern living than I blame them on For our For example... Well, again, um, computers and sitting and mm-hmm. uh, lack of activity. How about this? Uh, remote controls, electric garage door openers, drive-in windows. I mean, our modern lives are really set up so that we don't have to move, and that's a problem. You know, mm. life is motion. Nothing exists in a stagnant field very well. And so, you yeah, know, I just reminded myself of something uh, a little bit irrelevant to that, but if I could tell you. Of course. Okay. One of my favorite stories of osteopathy in action was when I was a resident at St. Barnabas Hospital, and we got consult. You had to run through the Bronx to get there. (laughs) Yeah. I had a hard time in the Bronx, a real hard time. You know, this work is all about healing, and to be in that environment was very challenging for me, an urban, you know, environment like that. My saving grace was Arthur Avenue, was right at the end of Arthur Avenue, mm-hmm. so I got some good Italian food. But and I was going to say, even a little good Jewish delicacy. i <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we were consulted to the maternity ward, which is, was pretty rare. Now, we treated everyone in the hospital. That was one of yeah. the best parts of St. Bart's. here were these women walking with yeah. their tummies out. To stand. Exactly, and generally healthy. You know, that's why we didn't go to the maternity ward. These are happy, healthy patients, if you will. Um, But we got consulted to the maternity ward, and it was so rare that the director of my apartment, who we affectionately called Dr. E, uh, wanted to go personally, and he took me with him. And we walked into the room of uh, about a 21-year-old Hispanic woman who was two weeks away from giving birth, big belly, and she was just miserable, in pain. I don't know if this baby was pressing on a nerve, the pelvic bone, whatever, but she was sweating. She was in so much discomfort. And I remember her look when we walked in. It was just kind of like, you know, whatever, two more white coats that probably Mm -hmm. weren't going to be able to do anything. You know, and these obstetricians, I don't care if it was a D.O. or an M.D., he couldn't prescribe pain medication for this one. So fortunately, they consulted us. So we walk in, and I stand at the foot of the bed. I'm basically just observing, and Dr. E. sits on the bedside, and he does the traditional maneuvers with his hands. He feels the belly kind of for the position of the baby. And then I see him sit back, and he's thinking for a minute, and then he motions her. She didn't speak much English, but he motioned her to come forward onto her hands and then on her knees. So she's on all fours on the bed. And I remember she's facing me. I'm at the foot of the bed. And I remember the look when she was getting to this position. It was kind of like indifference and skepticism, maybe. But he gets her on all fours. And then he comes over from the side. And I see him put his hands up under her belly. And I can't really tell what's happening from here. But he told me later, he basically just lifted up about an inch until he felt like he had this baby in the uterus in his hands. And then he went through three planes of motion. He moved a little bit toward her feet and a little bit toward her head. And in this case, he told me that the mass didn't want to go toward her her feet, so it, it went easily toward her head. So he just moved it like an inch and he held it there. And then he, you know, translated a little bit toward him, a little bit away, and then a little clockwise and counterclockwise movement. And in each of these motions, he just held the the, the baby uh, whichever direction it wanted to go. We call it into the direction of freedom. And when he was done, he took his hands down, and the whole thing probably took 30 seconds. And when he motioned her to sit back, it was the most dramatic change I've ever seen. This woman was smiling. I mean, she was literally glowing again from pregnancy. And we walked out of the room, and we're going down the hallway to leave a note in her chart. And I, we were both, like, euphoric, because in 30 seconds, he had taken this woman's pain away. And I said to him, Where did you learn that technique? And he said, I didn't. I just made it up. You know, one of the essences of osteopathy, Dr. Still, the founder, wrote several books on principles and philosophy, know your anatomy, know your patients. He never left one book on technique. It's not about technique. It's about understanding normal and then recognizing abnormal. And you make up the treatment. You know what to do instinctively. We're all instinctive healers. And when you're in that moment, you figure it out. And that was, to me, just such an amazing case. And again here's how many times in hospitals around the the country is this kind of thing happening where somebody's in pain and a simple fix could take care of their problems but there's just no training for this kind of work
0: well you've
1: doctor you've taken us through our
0: head our neck our our plates in front of us um,
1: down to the down to the hips Um, can we keep going sure biggest problem I find with the legs is that people do not walk properly generally we're duck walkers I'm a duck walker I know that (laughs) I
0: know it because you can always tell when you get that next pair of shoes where your heels have worn out on the outside yeah I
1: look at the bottom of shoes a lot it's like looking at the tires and diagnosing the alignment (laughs) of a car Um, I'm better, but I'm not perfect, but I noticed it in myself. One of my earlier offices had a glass door, and I'll never forget the morning I was walking up and I saw my reflection in the glass door, and I was like, who is that duck? So I think that happens for a lot of reasons. We cross our legs too much, that puts a little exterior rotation in the leg muscles. Probably the right foot on the gas pedal, a little bit turned out. Um, Stomach sleepers, you got to do something with your feet unless you're pointing your toes straight down. It hurts. Yeah. So you're <laughs> turning your leg. So we get again into these habits in the modern world typically where we get this rote like that. He's sitting up. We get this. I keep
0: having <laughs> to shift in my chair. No slumping, no crossing legs, no this and that. <laughs> it's
1: funny. You know, I went to my primary care doctor the other day and uh, just for a checkup. And I ask him how he's doing, he starts telling me about his back and his hip, and hey, he joined a gym, and he goes, wait a minute, whose appointment is this? So I get this a lot, you know, that's what I do. But anyway, so we find a lot of times that the legs start to turn out, and that's a tremendous problem. Interesting. Because... Your just for the knee and we'll we'll, maybe we'll get into the hip or not the knee is supposed to follow the foot so if you're walking fairly straight and typically you've got about a little what we call like a seven degree outward outward rotation of the foot is normal duck walkers you're probably 15 20% out so the knee is supposed to mostly just hinge back and forth following a forward facing foot when you're planting your foot out laterally now your knee is initially going to follow that foot but then because the direction of movement is forward, your knee is going to have to torque. Guess what? That puts a lot of pressure on the medial side of the knee, and maybe that's one of the reasons why medial meniscal tears are incredibly common today, in any event. So you're putting uneven pressures and torque into your knee when you're not walking properly, um, and it does the same for the hip. You can't do anything to the knee that you're not going to do the hip because the femur is a stick and if you move one end of the stick you got to move the other end. So knee pain is uh, eventually hip pain and vice versa. Okay. So a lot of it is walking how we walk. I love this. I really do, doctor. And thank you for that cuz
0: I'm going to walk out of here today and watch it. <laughs> but it's a little late for me.
1: <laughs> but, but never, but, never. But but you said maybe we can go visit the hip for a moment. Can we do that now? Yeah, sure. Two major problems with the hip. As I mentioned earlier, the psoas muscle, tight, more and more often than not, it's tight and weak, but mainly tight in... Uh, and uh, the psoas... The psoas is that filet p- that problem from too much sitting. Right. That and we that need to stretch. goes between the... The lumbar spine and the hip joint. Okay. It attaches at the top of the femur before it dives in to become your hip joint. Okay. Sure. The femur being the thigh muscle. So and I mentioned there's another major hip stabilizer muscle we call the piriformis, which is a lot of times what people think is sciatica or butt pain is actually piriformis strain, but that muscle goes from your sacrum to your hip joint. So those two muscles attach very close to each other and are two of the major what we call hip stabilizers. Their job is to keep your hip in the proper orientation and stabilize it. And again, as those muscles, because of our modern lives, start to get tight, we start to get kind of compacted hip joints. Probably one of the things that leads to what you hear of is bone on bone hip problems. Mm. So, one of them again is that. In the middle tension. of the night television. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Talk about bone on bone, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's your uh, tension. And then again, I keep coming back to misalignment and tension, but that is the one-two punch for 99% of all the musculoskeletal problems we have. So what's the correction on this hip problem? You need to stretch the external rotators of the hip. So that actually was, we talked about the piriformis and the psoas. So coincidentally, when they're tight, they not only give you compressed hip problems, but those are two of the lateral rotators of the hip. Part of their job is to actually turn your leg and your foot, Laterally toward the side, so when they're tight, they're going to be doing that more than they should, and you're going to be doing the duck walk. So you have to stretch those two muscles in particular, and that's will start to turn that foot more toward the middle. And you do that how? Um, well, it's it's a little tricky to describe on the radio, but basically, you get into you know how uh, especially in the old it was a men's position more than women, but when you sit with your legs crossed. Your ankle on top of your opposite knee, like, yeah, you know, you're yeah, reading yeah. a novel in an overstuffed chair, and you got sure. your... That's the starting position, and then you just bend forward at the waist. and but you, you will keep your knee there? Keep your legs in that position, and then you bend forward. You'll feel a pull in your butt. Yeah, you, you feel it? Yeah. Yeah. But I feel it in my left butt. Yeah. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now. Yeah. And I don't, I've do not i never treated you. No, you haven't. Right? Your left is going to be tighter than your right. I find that in about 99% of people. So when you do the opposite, now you always want to stretch both sides of the body. When you do the opposite side, you're going to find it's easier. Yeah, Yeah. no question. Yeah. I don't know why that is. We have these patterns, and I've discovered different Mm -hmm. ones in the body. But 99% of people, when they go into those, try those both sides, the left is almost always tighter. And that's the stretch. Let's talk sex. Now, Mm -hmm. people, you know, they get into
0: various contortions during sexual activity. Mm -hmm. Do you advise them on that? Is this a joke?
1: No. (laughs) I can't say I ever have, no.
0: <laughs> I was just reading Gene Wilder's obituary. Okay. And Gilda Radner was in his room. They were not together yet. And she obviously had her eye on him. And it was just, this was in the obit. And he wrote a book in which he quoted this. And she said, she hopped out on top of him and said, let's have fun. <laughs> Now, <laughs> some of those, some of those positions yeah. uh, can be somewhat difficult, especially yes. if you haven't used those various muscles. Oh
1: yeah, you'll get a charley horse, which may improve the process. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, you'll find you have to move a lot faster probably than you're used to. When you get in certain compromising positions And uh, I think people find this all the time You know, you reach for something behind you And all of a sudden you start getting a spasm in your back Or even people, I'll tell you I like get a lot of elderly people When they just lie on my table flat They're not used to lying on their back And their muscles start to settle And because of tension and uh, and mm-hmm. just an inability To kind of settle appropriately They start to get back spasms And yeah, you know, we give it a minute But but nobody's ever come To keep with the sex question No,
0: Nobody's ever come to you so. A woman has never come to you say Doctor, doctor I have um, <laughs> I have problems. You know, I am as amenable to this as anybody else, but, you know, my husband wants this, and I find that I put my back into spasm. They probably are
1: saying it a different way, even if that's the problem, you know. Maybe that's what they mean when they say they were washing dishes and their back went out. I don't know. But basically what I can tell you is you know you have to move your body in all sorts of varied ways and again this is the other problem as I mentioned kind of with shoulders and stuff we we tend to work in repetitive movements and work in a very limited range of motion and joints themselves rely on a full range of motion for lubrication and so when you just kind of move and, and and I mentioned all the modern conveniences that keep us kind of from having to move this is a big problem because the joints not to mention the tendons ligaments muscles need a lot of movement in order to be healthy and in order for you to do whatever you want to do and I talk about that a lot you know you want to garden into your 80s you want to dance at your child's wedding or grandchild's wedding you need to come up with a why you know, to do the kinds of things I'm recommending, and granted, I'm talking about 10 minutes a day. I keep it as simple as sure. possible, and I target it to these areas I find as problems. I don't just give out, you know, a basic menu of items, but still, I always tell people you need to know your why because none of us even have an extra 10 minutes in the day that we feel like just devoting to stretching or whatnot. So, you know, sex might be your why, but no,
0: not mine. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's no, this is doctor, doctor, my friend that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Gotcha. My friend has- Gotcha. No, this is not, this no, but, is not autobiographical. But movement Lozella, is- I hope you're listening. <laughs> movement is very important. And let me just say one very important thing. I have known many, many patients in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who at the uh, bequest of their cardiologist or loved one has decided to take up a cardiovascular routine for their heart health and their basic health. Right. And whether it's a treadmill or a bicycle or walking, whatever, unfortunately- Many, many of those people are sidelined within weeks because of a knee pain or a hip pain. Yeah, yeah. So what I always tell people is before you jump into an exercise routine or restart one that you've abandoned, you don't have to get my book, but do some stretching and some exercising and and loosen your body up because a tight missile. It's huge. Yeah tight misaligned body then that does repetitive movements it's a recipe for disaster.
0: So I have a regular four mile walk that I do up and down hills and I know that if I don't stretch my calf muscles and yeah. other things, I'm gonna have a Charlie horse unlike anything that anybody's ever seen. All it does is it takes a couple of seconds to do that.
1: Yeah. Oh absolutely
0: now yeah. I wanna go to another place. I've heard a lot about and in fact I've had some injections, you know, steroid injections You're a DO, you know about these muscles. The rap on the injections are work the first time, Mm -hmm. okay the second time, third time, not at all. What can you tell us about these steroid injections?
1: Uh, You know, it's one of these topics that I, I have different feelings about. I mean, on one hand, they've helped lots of people. I think my own mother told me, I didn't know this, but she had a shoulder problem, you know, when she was younger. At one injection, it was gone. And I don't want anyone to be in pain. And oftentimes, when you've got chronic pain, an injection will help you and so uh, you know more power to you but of course there's problems number one steroids aren't irritant to the body uh they destroy tissue okay that's why you can't have more than a certain number in a set period of time uh, more than that and you would definitely do more harm than good the other problem with injections is that you're muting pain and that can be very dangerous mm. uh, muting pain more than even you know uh, the advils and tylenols of the world sometimes and so if you all of a sudden feel your shoulder is, oh, it's fantastic because these, this steroid and this uh, anesthetic is coursing around the region, you go out and, you know, play your set of tennis, you could really be paying a bigger price down the line. So I will always recommend people use them incredibly sparingly and never as a first resort. You, again, it's, it's dealing with the symptom of the problem. It's not dealing with the cause of the problem. And the cause is always going to get back to misalignment intention, and sometimes that's the result of trauma, you know, and there may be rare cases of something genetic or whatever, but for the most part, these are symptoms of a problem, again, the tendonitis and the arthritis and stuff, and you need to deal with the cause, and then oftentimes you don't have to deal with the injection. Dr. Thierry,
0: I guess the question next is, and we only have five minutes left, but I was referred by a surgeon to PT and it worked like crazy i thought it was baloney that it was just gonna
1: but it worked yeah do you refer to, to pt people i do physical therapy is a is an interesting topic um physical therapy has changed a lot over the years yes it was originally set up as a wing in a hospital that was going to rehabilitate you from a uh, heart attack or a joint replacement surgery What happened over the years, though, are patients would go to their family doctor with a headache, neck pain, back pain, and they'd walk out with a prescription for a pain reliever. Well, a lot of people over time really didn't like that. They wanted something more. And, of course, as I've mentioned, physicians are just poorly trained in musculoskeletal medicine. So they finally said, all right, all right, let me send you to physical therapy. And I think that's a heck of a lot better than, you know, giving a prescription for drugs and whatnot. The only issue in that case was PT people were getting things they were not used to treating. I mean, physical therapies typically, are they really going to be treating headaches in their training? You know, they're not healers in a sense. So they were getting a lot of things that they weren't trained for. Now, you know. Of course they're training them now they're certainly getting uh, a lot more uh, education as far as hands-on work and different kinds of techniques a lot of them are actually osteopathic techniques yeah my guy sounded a lot like you he would tell you exactly what muscle groups were involved and what was attached to what yeah i don't do those kinds of techniques because i i can kind of dive into the deeper stuff but we've osteopathic schools actually do train physical therapists and we give them a lot of our basic musculoskeletal techniques and so they're becoming much better trained to handle headaches and neck pains but again notoriously that's not really what they were designed for but it's a great option for a lot of people because most of them are down the corner. A lot of them take most of them take insurance, and they're doing hands-on work. And then they usually set you up with exercises or strengthening. Do a little ultrasound. So yeah, I think for most people, it's a, a much better option than you know surgery, pain relievers, injections. Um, again, I do the hands-on part. So the only time I typically re- uh, refer people is for maybe strengthening if I want to just have somebody show them a little bit more than I can do in the office. Now, we only have two minutes,
0: mm-hmm. but I wanted to give you those two minutes to talk to us a little bit about the book that is about to come out. It's called End Everyday Pain for 50 Plus, a 10-minute-a-day program of stretching, strengthening, and movement to break the grip of pain.
1: So you worked on this for how long? Ooh. Six or seven years, probably. Really? Well, I did it as a hobby. I I didn't have any kind of contract. I like writing, and I felt like there were a couple messages that needed to get out there that weren't out there number one, again, was this phenomenon that people came in and said, "I'm Doc, I'm falling apart, you know, and, and I had to explain to them this process was long in coming and that they needed to do something to uh, prevent it. So it was to get that message out that, you know, you got to do some maintenance, you got to listen to your body. I call it the check engine light, that kind of tweak in your neck or your knee. It's signaling you, you've got to do something. We blow it off because a couple Advil, it goes away and then we forget about it. But it's like a tsunami, it's coming and we need to do something about prevention, maintenance. So so I wrote it for that reason, for the reason I mentioned that there's a lot of myths and scapegoats about arthritis and herniated discs. And the problem with that is, is also that if you think you've got a disc problem, you're not going to take action, you know? Why do anything? So I had to clear up a lot of that, uh, those myths. And finally, you know, again, really just to give people a targeted, quick, 10-minute-a-day program so that they could do this maintenance and prevent a lot of the problems that I saw coming. So when are we going to see the book? October 18th. It's on
0: Amazon right now, though. We've been in conversation today with osteopathic physician, Dr. Joseph Thierry. Dr. Thierry, thanks so much for joining us today. We very much
1: appreciate all the time you're giving us. Well, I appreciate being here and I had a lot of fun. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, president and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and professor emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.